Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 193. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 193 you're listening to. My guest today is Drew Vandenberg, who is an engineer and producer, as well as a label owner, and he's based out of Athens, Georgia. And Drew got his start working out of legendary Chase Park Transduction Studios when he was just 16, uh, learning the finer points of the craft, of course, from studio founder David Barbie. Now, if you're a numbers person, you'll find this interesting. I know I found it interesting, and I swear I did not plan it this way. But David, if you go back in past episodes, David was on episode number 93, and here we are on 193. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Maybe maybe it's not that interesting. But uh, anyhow, um, speaking of numbers, uh, Drew is no longer 16, and he is... Uh, been kicking ass ever since he's done some really pivotal records for bands like Ra Ra Riot, Toro Imoy of Montreal, Kishibashi, Tall Tall Trees, and many more. So uh, I'm super excited to have him on today. We have uh, been emailing back and forth and uh, our emails span the course of a few months. So it's taken Drew and I a while to really hook up here. So I'm really happy we could make this interview happen. So excited to bring you Drew Vandenberg here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay, get your coffee, sit back, uh, look out, I'm about to monologue. All right, so through the course of the podcast, I've mentioned to you several things uh, that I do that really complement my life. And I've talked about some services, I've talked about Backblaze, I've talked about uh, Mint, you know, Backblaze for backing up, Mint for tracking your money. I've also talked about things I do. I've talked about the summertime purge where I try to sell off gear I'm not using and put that money either in the bank or towards other gear. I've talked about digitizing documents, you know, so you don't have a lot of paper clutter around and so you can find stuff at a moment's notice. I've talked about all these little links in the chain of things that help complement our life. Of, of course, the you know staying out of debt, that's, that's also been a pretty pivotal uh, part of everything too. And I'm going to tie this all in. To me, all these things I've been telling you tie into the central concept that I mentioned a few episodes ago. I think it was on Lee Bothwick's episode where I talked about opportunity knocking. And I told you then, I said, when opportunity knocks, it's not going to come knocking on your schedule. It's not going to send you a preemptive letter saying or give you a phone call saying, oh, hey, by the way, uh, we're going to be calling you. There's a great opportunity coming your way and you need to be prepared for it. All these things tie into that point in your life when an opportunity is going to come your way by way of somebody saying, oh, by the way, can you go on the road? Can you make this record? Can you help us with this project? Where it could be a stepping stone for you or it could be a monumental point in your career. So handling all of that crap that I told you about will keep you organized and keep you on top of it and keep you sane so that when those opportunities do come, you're ready to kick ass and move forward without a hesitation. So stay prepared and be ready for the opportunities. Want to encourage you to stop on by uaudio.com. That's, of course, our friends at Universal Audio. Those folks 
make some fantastic gear and tools for us all to use. And they're fantastic people that work there. Uh, they're very passionate about what they do, and they are not screwing around. They really take what they do seriously. I know that firsthand. Uh, and I'm grateful to them for their help for making the podcast possible. So stop on by uaudio.com. Also want to encourage you to stop on by gearsluts.com, specifically to one of my favorite forums, subforum known as Audio Life, uh, which we sponsor. And I've talked about it a million times. It's a great place to go if you're tired of the gear discussion and you want to see what other engineers and audio pros are doing to get through uh, some of the difficulties that we all have keeping our lives rolling and surviving, you know? It's very similar to what we talk about here at WCA. So stop on by gearsluts.com. All right. Want you to go get a refill on the coffee, sit back and enjoy. Let's go to Athens, Georgia to Studio B at Chase Park Transduction where this conversation takes place with our friend, Drew Vandenberg here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's an honor. I, uh, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Ah, uh, you're making me blush. Or that could be the coffee I'm drinking. Right. <laughs> Boy, where to begin here? First of all, thanks for staying with me on the email train that we took to get here. I counted it up. It's almost, I think it's 42 emails. <laughs> yeah, we, it was a long and winding road to get here. It, it, Yeah. So just for the audience, sometimes, you know, putting these interviews together is a, a scheduling dance. Yeah. We both missed each other in Europe. I guess I was there about a month and then right when I got back, you went for a month. That's right. Yeah. So it, it, it takes a little bit to make it happen, but we made it happen. I appreciate you, uh, staying in touch with me. Now, as we were discussing before we actually started recording and getting started here, your name came up initially because you recommended David Barbie to me in an email right. uh, quite some time ago. And I'm, I'm actually looking it up, not the email, but the, uh, the episode. And I think that was, and I'll tell you right now, that was uh, Working Class Audio episode. That was number 93. Oh, wow. It wasn't even to 100 yet. Not even to 100. And we're almost to 200 now. So, you know, quite some time later. Anyhow, here we are. Let's start with David as an anchor point, because David has been a mentor to you. Yeah, for a very long time. And he created Chase Park Transduction in Athens, Georgia, which is where you're speaking to me from, I assume? Yep. I'm in, over in Studio B mixing a record all this week. Mm. Studio A looks a little cooler. It's where more of the tracking happens. So it's got a lot more outboard gear and uh, that's where the cool big tracking space is. This has more of a utilitarian, smaller overdub room and it's used more for just mix, finishing mixes and overdubbing. But David and Andy were really smart when they built the place. A and B have the same console, same set of monitors all the same compressors, same exact control room design. So jumping between the two is, uh, it's almost exactly the same sounding. It's very easy to transition, which is a pretty cool system, you know? Yeah, because in most studios, their A room and their B room are always very different. Different consoles, different style, different set of outboard gear. Right. So that is a smart design. Yeah, I mean, it, it lacks the maybe diversity of having a second console, but it makes it, it's from a practical standpoint, 
it's amazing just being able to hop between the two and not having to worry about, okay, I've got to reset up my routing and pro tools or, you know, anything like that. It's the same exact everything. It's, it's pretty great. I've never heard of that. And that actually makes a lot of sense. I don't know why more people don't do that. Yeah. A lot of times, like if people have two rooms, I guess the B room is sometimes the cheaper of the two and maybe they have a control service or something just to uh, offer people a more affordable option. But I really think having two on the same level rooms, exactly the same is, is actually a pretty cool workflow. Well, at least from an engineering standpoint, it's a pretty, pretty great workflow, you know? But now what about the live room aspect? So A has got a live room attached to it. Does B have a live room attached? Well, B has a much smaller, I'd say maybe a fifth of the size room. You can, it's perfect for vocals or overdubbing guitars. I have recorded drums in it before when I wanted just super, super dead 70s sounding drums. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, yeah, it's like I'll start a project in A, get all the basic tracking done, and then bring it over here and and free up the tracking, uh, the bigger tracking room, get the overdubs and uh, mixing done over here. And it's a pretty seamless transition back and forth between the two. How did you meet David? My story is similar to a lot of other people's on the podcast where... You know, I always played music from a really young age, started playing piano when I was four. When I got into my teen years, I realized I really didn't have the passion that other people had for, I mean, I've always loved playing music, but I got to be honest, I never was the kid who could sit there for five hours and be engrossed in playing an instrument by themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with music, but I just never had that drive. And frankly, I hated it. I hate practicing alone. So in my teenage years, I started, I don't know, reading more liner notes. Um, I, my, my parents both have really cool taste in music, so I was always around a lot of great music. But one day I just noticed in the liner notes when I was about 14 or 15 of, I, I can't remember what, this is the CD era because I'm 33. So I remember reading recorded by or engineered by and thinking like, I've never even thought about the fact that somebody records, like an, an extra person records this music. So I went online probably pre-Google, so used whatever search, Yahoo'd it at the time. What is a, Alta Vista. Uh, you know, audio, Alta Vista did at the time on my dial-up and uh, looked up what is an audio engineer and honestly saw pictures and everything of it and just was floored. And I, I'm, this sounds like hyperbole, but I literally right then and there was like, that is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I was so sure when I started reading about it that that's what I was going to do when I was 15 years old. What's interesting about your story in the discovery of what engineers do, what producers do, those who record the records that you're listening to, and your discovery through an online method is very interesting. Most people's exposure is through a friend, through an uncle, or somebody taking them to the studio And here you are in this day and age, or in that day and age, as it were, discovering online. I'm sure the audience is going, well, duh. But for me, you know, (laughs) I find that fascinating that that's how you discovered it. Yet you still got into it. It, You just found it in a different way than most of us. Yeah, I, I didn't have that quintessential early experience in the studio. I actually had my first studio experience after that moment when I was about 17 or 18 going into the one of the local studios actually weirdly not here because bandmates girlfriend got us a gift certificate for eight hours at another local studio so i had already been working here even at that point before i ever had my first experience being recorded as a musician which you're right i've never thought about it before but it is kind of backwards for most people's story after i kind of researched the job when i was old enough to drive 
I started kind of poking around and trying to see like, okay, what local studios are around? What, how, how can I get involved in the music industry? And uh, my girlfriend at the time, her father was the head of the printmaking department here at the, uh, the University of Georgia's here in Athens. My dad's actually a professor there also. So a, a, it employs a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But I was at a dinner party they were throwing and telling these other guests, and, and they're kind of, uh, Carmen's a really cool guy, really well connected in, with musician and art scene here in Athens when he lived here. And talking about it at dinner and a friend of his said, you know what, I don't know anyone that works at a recording studio, but I am very good friends with the person who books the 40 Watt Club here in Athens, which is kind of our famous Athens club. Yes. Yeah. You've probably heard of it. I think most people, when they, you know, hear Athens, they think REM B-52's 40 Watt Club. That's sort of the list that they go down. Yeah. So my first job actually was working for Valina as a booking intern at the 40 Watt Club. And then, uh, which was amazing as a 16 year old because, I mean, I don't want to get her in trouble, but as long as I didn't do anything stupid or try to drink, she would let me go to shows, you know, because I'd be working and helping her. So, you know, when I was in high school, I suddenly, I'm a pretty nerdy guy then and still, but I was all, all of a sudden pretty cool because like on a school night, I could as long as I was home by a certain time and I had my homework done ahead of time, my parents were pretty cool about letting me go to rock shows like on a Wednesday, which was pretty amazing. You know, like I saw the Flaming Lips in a 500 person venue, you know, and uh, Queens of the Stone Age. And it was right in the early 2000, this is 2001. So when like that whole thing, like rock is back, quote unquote, you know what I mean? The Strokes played, Bright Eyes. It was, it was amazing as a, as a kid, I Really still can't believe that I got to do that, honestly. Yeah. Well, that very um, cool of your parents at the time. Yeah, they've always been super supportive, healthily skeptical sometimes, oh, yeah. but always very supportive. So anyway, after working for Valina for about six months, I said, you know, I appreciate all these opportunities and I've learned so much already, but, you know, where I really want to be is in the recording studio learning about that. And she's like, well, I know just the person you should call. And she gave me Chase Park's number and I called David, just cold called him and said, look, I've been working for Valina. I'm very passionate about this. And he said, well, can you be down here at 8 a.m. tomorrow? That was sort of the test. Like, all right, kid, well, then you're getting up on a Saturday and you're coming in. And uh, I came in and did a little interview and I kind of just honestly dove right in. I, I was only 16, so I, I had no knowledge of that time. Like, again, it's kind of backwards. I didn't have a four track first that I was messing around with. My very first recording experiences were in a studio. But, you know, I do things like I learned. Well, I already knew how to change guitar strings. So I changed guitar strings, keep the place clean and just started slowly picking up little bits here and there. And you know, becoming more and more useful, learning how to coil cables correctly, where everything goes, how a tube mic works. And uh, I did that on and off for the last two years of high school. Well, my, my parents know this now because I already told them, but I also had a job at Finish Line selling shoes when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes just so that I could be here more, I would kind of fib and tell them I needed to go to the shoe job so I couldn't uh, finish my homework right now. And I just actually come down to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I waited many years to tell them that, but uh, yeah, I used to kind of fib a little. I mean, I wasn't getting into trouble. I was still learning, but yeah. Yeah, we tend to do that as we get older. We start to reveal to our parents the things that we actually were doing when they thought we were doing something else. And then they give you that look like, I'm so disappointed. It's a brutal look, but at least, you know, in my case, doing that, it, it paid off, you know, hugely. So 
yeah, that's kind of the long rambling story of how I met Barbie. And uh, now I worked here on and off through high school and then would come back periodically from, uh, from college in the summers and also work for him and just continue to learn. He's always been a huge part of my audio life, still is. He's the head of the UGA music business program and still is making records and coaches Little League. He's the busiest person that I know. And it's kind of funny because we're in the same building all the time, but hardly ever see each other or, you know, it's like catch each other over the water cooler kind of thing. Yeah. Well, at this point, I, I will go as far as saying, and this isn't hyperbole. I think that, uh, I think David Barbie's a badass personally. Oh, same. Yeah. I, and I'm really, you know, it's funny on my sonic journey. Oh, that's kind of a corny phrase, but, uh, whatever. I feel like we have kind of different styles now, but all the things that have stuck with me are more like foundational than that. I've got so many things about work ethic and how you treat clients and talk to people and uh, how to set up efficiently that I'd say we probably do exactly the same because I was around him learning for like eight years. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's a big part of my life. How do you get your clients? You you live in Athens. Does Athens music scene continue to thrive? Oh yeah, it's um I would say especially in the past 5 or 6 years we hit like a really huge and it's still going uh spike in really cool new bands. But it's always kind of an incubator even when it's a little slower, you know, being such a big university town. I think I heard somebody else recently talking about this on your podcast the fellow from Tulsa talking about how he wished there was more colleges in his town. I, I can see where he's coming from because, I mean, having that resource here is, means that there's constantly new, young, creative people moving here. And it kind of just is always refreshing itself, which, you know, and not everybody stays even if they start a band. But if people get traction, a lot of them do, you know, at least for a few years. And, and then if things get really big, they might decide to move on. But I would say a lot of my clients are, are local Athens musicians. But to be honest, for me, it's weird until recently, a lot of them weren't. I, I was working with a ton of outside bands, and I think you made a joke on another episode, changing your podcast to be called Word of Mouth. Right. I would say that, yeah, most of my clients up until recently have all been Word of Mouth, you know, just working on this and then someone recommending me and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I also am represented now in the past couple of years by Sandy Robertson at World's End, which I know uh Brad Wood, who, you, who you've interviewed, and Jack and Dino are also. Tell me about that. Tell me about getting hooked up with Sandy. Uh, I'll backtrack. You know, Athens is amazing because it's so affordable. Cost of living is so cheap, and it, it, it's easy to have a really nice life here. But you do sometimes feel a little disconnected from the bigger music business at large. Mm -hmm. And a couple years ago, I kind of thought, well, maybe my discography is good enough now where maybe, because I had cold emailed some managers several years ago when I was probably way too young and got no answers, which is honestly fine and probably what should have happened at the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I thought, I, I love it here. I have no desire to move, but I do want to be plugged into the bigger business at large better. So I think I'm going to take another crack at, at emailing some people again. And uh, I emailed several folks and only two answered. One to say she'd love to have me, but her operation's so small, she can only have five or six clients at the time. And Sandy, who was honestly my reach, because um, I mean, if you look at the other producers he represents, it's like who's who. I mean, it's Peter Cadis and Nick Lanois. I mean, it's like amazing people. So I thought there's no way this guy's going to answer me. But he did, which was, you know, pretty incredible from a cold email and 
we Skyped, I think the next day and he said, you know what, on a six month trial basis, let's try this and see how we like working together. And if we like it, we'll sign something up and we'll do this. And the six months went really well. And uh, it's been a couple of years now since we've been working together and it's been amazing, honestly. Wow. So can I ask what you said in that initial email? Well, I kind of just told him what I told you. I said, look, I think I'm not a big name yet and that's totally fine, but I think things are I'm not saying I ever will be, I'm not trying to compare my, seem egotistical or compare myself to those people ever, because you never know how things are going to turn out. But I said to him, you know, I think I'm doing really good work in Athens. And I think sometimes uh, I wish I had a wider reach that not enough people know about me or that, to be honest, and I've run into this before talking to people at record labels, they kind of still have sometimes this attitude of looking down their nose at smaller town people. You know, like, oh, how, well, it's not New York, Nashville, LA, or, you know, Chicago, Mm -hmm. some big hub. Like, you're kind of out in the sticks. How do we know you're legitimate? You know what I mean? And I've run into that on and off throughout my career a little bit. And I just kind of told that to Sandy, like, look, I'd love representation to just honestly help find more outside clients and also just to kind of legitimize myself a little bit more to some of these people. And and also get, get meetings with people that would never give me meetings before. I mean, Sandy's been doing this for so long. He is one of the most well-connected people I've ever met in the music industry. Like, it's crazy. Interesting. Um, so I basically just laid that out on an email and said, look, here's some of my work. I'd love for you to check it out. Tell me if you think uh, I'm ready, if the, the, if the management even makes sense for someone like me yet. He, yeah, he responded and said he really liked the work I was doing and would love to talk more. And then, you know, we just had a, a conversation for about an hour the next day and talked about the kind of things I'd love to work on, you know, the kind of connections he had and and the kind of things that he, you know, saw for me that might be a good fit. And uh, yeah, we've just been working together ever since. And correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, but Sandy actually was a producer and an engineer in his, in his day. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, which uh, I think he hasn't been doing it for a long time at this point. You know, it's sort of how uh, you often are talking to producers or engineers who are also musicians. And so they can understand better how it feels to be on the other side of the glass or be on the road or whatever. Right. Yeah. Having Sandy as representation kind of feels like that from, but from a producer way, like he gets it. He understands the hours. He knows how brutal it can be. He knows what it's like to try to get people to pay you sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, so I think that gives him a really cool, unique perspective that I I don't know a lot of other managers have. This is just another great part about working with them. You know, if somebody said, hey, do you think I should cold email some managers? That almost is like somebody saying, hey, should I send my demo to the record label? I would never discourage somebody from doing that. You know, yeah, it's it's kind of along those lines. And I admire yeah. you for being fearless in doing so and just saying, what the hell? I have nothing to lose. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, I, I think I've had a lot of opportunities. I mean, even the opportunity with David, that's, again, just a cold phone call. I, I think it's important to not be afraid of rejection like that, even though we can experience it quite frequently in this line of work um, and musicians can, too. And just keep hammering away, you know, because like I said, the first time I emailed, cold emailed people, I got zero of 10 responses. So for me, just getting one or two was a, a huge step up. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got to be honest, I'm envious because how cool is that, you know? Yeah, I, I was floored, to be really honest with you, because like I said, he was the biggest reach out of all of them. I, I honestly couldn't believe it. 
And one other comment just on that fearlessness, and I have a horrible memory about some things, but this I remember vividly. When I was 17, getting ready to leave Southern New Mexico and move to San Francisco, because at the time San Francisco had a music industry. But at the time I was in one of my early bands. And when I told some people that I was going to move to San Francisco with my band in hopes of getting a record deal, I had so many people tell me that'll never work. That'll never. In, in fact, I remember one person saying, oh, come on, Matt, that's a one in a million chance to get a record deal. Right. And I ended up in my early 20s getting two record deals. Now, it didn't work out, but, right. but getting but that's those amazing were, still. So, yeah, I mean, I just want to encourage those that are listening don't be afraid of trying. Don't be afraid of failure. Failure is a, one of the greatest teachers. I agree. I mean, you know, I went to Indiana University for four years for recording arts and getting into that program at the time, it was also, they, they've changed it now, but it was crazy. Like you had to go up there and for your first semester, you took four classes. It's different now. You get admitted directly. But at the time I had to go out of state and depending on my grade in these four classes in an, in an interview during the first semester, that determined whether or not you got into the school. So basically, you could have been throwing away an entire semester worth of schooling, paying for it and everything, and still get rejected. And they only let 15 kids in a year. So like I was rolling the dice pretty big time going, going out of state to do this and... It was the most intense semester of schooling up to that point and ever um, because, you know, there's like 250 kids trying to get in and you're all in these huge classes and only 15 of you are getting in. So add to that also my parents were very practical people telling me, well, if you don't get into this program, you probably should come back and go to state school, even though there's not a program for that here. Because in Georgia, I don't know if they have anything like this in California, but we have something called the Hope Scholarship, which allows kids with a certain GPA to go to state school for free. Hmm. And I was eligible for that. So, you know, that was a time when my very practical parents were definitely a little skeptical of the, the plan to go out of state and pay all this money and potentially have to come back with my tail between my legs within a year, you know? Mm -hmm. But I didn't. Yeah. Anyway, that's just to your point of, of I was very scared and nervous to do that. I'm moving to a state where I know nobody and competing to get into a program that I wanted so bad. But it worked out, which is amazing. Um, oh, that's great to hear. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio who helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their Mini K47 mic, which is priced at $299 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So if you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com. And they do offer free shipping. But if you really want to help our cause with them, make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCA free ship and that way they know that you came from us and you heard about roswell pro audio from working glass audio so there it is check it out roswellproaudio.com just to carry on our conversation about sandy so what has been your experience what has sandy done for you well, it's been great. You know, he has found me a few really cool clients in the past two years, and, that, and that's been awesome. But the other thing that he's really, really helped me do is sort of legitimize my business more. By that, I mean, like, 
helping me figure out what someone like me, where where I'm living and uh, with my discography should be charging. That's been a big thing. You know, I realized after talking to him for a bit that I was honestly underselling myself a bit. He's also helped me legitimize business in getting like back-end deals together, producer point things, things I had never really done before because honestly, I was intimidated to talk about them or I'm also honestly, and I think most engineers and producers who are passionate are this way. I'm the guy that just says yes before I work out the details. Yeah. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Which is a good thing, but also can lead you to dangerous business things if you're not working things out on the front end. So he's been super, super helpful with all of that. And also, like I mentioned earlier, plugging me into the bigger system. You know, now when I go up to New York to record a band or if I'm in L.A., visiting my in-laws. My my wife's a native Angelino, third generation. Her family's been there since the 30s. But Sandy will always set me up with meetings with labels and managers and A&R folks and meetings with bands I might want to work with. And so that's been invaluable, honestly. I've met so many people that way. It's been incredible. Okay. I, this is where I really hoping to glean some information. Can you pull back the curtain on taking those meetings? I'm not asking you to name names, but what is discussed right. in those meetings? Well, yeah, they can be kind of awkward, especially if you don't know each other yet, or it, or it hasn't happened naturally. You know, at South by Southwest this year, I met several managers, but it was just like, hey, we're both getting a beer, seeing this band. And as you know, conversations that happen that way more naturally you, you kind of slide into them and it, it gets a rhythm. It's a little easier. Uh, walking into those meetings kind of cold can be kind of weird at first, but generally I figure we, we kind of just start by finding common ground musically or uh, if it, for example, I'll, I'll use to narrow it down a meeting with a label a person. Typically I want to have a meeting with them because I love a lot of the artists on their label, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'll ask, I'll, I'll, I'll just come in and say, Hey, you know what? I really love, the work you guys do here. I love XYZ band. And I just want to tell you a little bit about myself and my discography and, you know, what it would be like to make a record in Athens. Kind of pitch myself a little bit that way because most of these people have never heard of me. You know, they might have heard of a record or two that I've done. There's a couple that kind of stand out. But like I said previously, I'm, I'm not one of the big guns by any means. So it's not like I walk into a room and everybody knows who I am. But generally, I just start off like that. And then we just start chatting about stuff that they've got coming up or, or sometimes artists after hearing sort of what I'm into. And sometimes I even play them stuff I'm working on. So, you know, I've had a lot of really positive experiences with these meetings where I walked in sort of skeptical. You know, I think we're all a little skeptical of the suits sometimes, but, you know, there's a lot of really awesome people who are on that side of the music business. A lot of people complain about it all the time. And I know the bureaucracy can be kind of tough on artists sometimes, but there's people who are just as passionate as we are working on that side of things. So, We'll, we'll just honestly start talking about music and they might recommend some things that I th- would be a good fit for me to work on. And, you know, we just kind of go from there, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Are you making a better living because you're, you have access now to doing these meetings and, and working with these other bands? Has there been a big jump in your, your income? Well, I wouldn't say a big jump, but I would say a slow growth for sure. Okay. It has been more since doing them. I've seen a big jump just from Sandy helping me legitimize my business with even local people, honestly. 
But it's it's like I think it's about getting on these people's radar and then the slow growth, you know, like you keep in touch and then all of a sudden you do one thing for their label and then the next time something comes up, they'll think, oh, yeah, you know what? I just had coffee with Drew Vandenberg and he was a super nice guy. I think I'm going to just throw that out there to this artist. You know what I mean? It kind of you kind of have to let it you just maintain these relationships with these people that hopefully you've connected with musically. And then hopefully the next time so-and-so is like, you know what, I really want someone to mix and I I, I kind of want to think outside the box here or I, I want someone to mix. I also love this band, the A&R person, whoever might remember like, oh yeah, you know, actually I know a guy who worked on one of those records. So I think rather than like a big jump, it's more... Yeah, about the long game. It's a slow growth and, and establishing these relationships and also establishing the, the back-end deals like I was talking about. You know, I haven't seen any money from any producer deal yet, but what if something hits a huge sink, gets a huge sink deal all of a sudden, you know? Yep. Five years from now, something I did seven years ago could potentially make me a couple or a few thousand dollars, you know? Yep. You know, that's one thing that David taught me from a very young age is it's worth sacrificing the short term for the long term growth. Yeah. You know, don't try to grab the, don't, you know, th- you got to think about, and you talk about this a lot with uh, retirement savings often on the show. You know, it's super important to think about the long game. Um, so I, I think it's totally worth the work, even though I'm not seeing like massive monetary differences right now. Okay. Um yeah, I feel really good about the direction that it's heading. And I have seen, like I said, a, uh, I've been really lucky every year I've been doing this, I have made slightly more money than the last. It's not a lot of money, yeah. but it, I've always seen steady growth by a little bit. Well, unfortunately, so, cost of living in Athens, I'm sure, is quite affordable. Oh, yeah. I, I would probably make you throw up if I told you the cost of buying a home here compared to where you live, unfortunately. At this point, I'm so desensitized that when I go to other places and I see the cost of things, I'm like, oh my God, they're giving it away. I have friends trying to make it in the Bay Area and even in stuff outside of music, it just seems so difficult. Yeah. Um, It's pretty nutty. Pretty nutty. It's it's, it's too bad because it's such a beautiful place. But let's talk about Athens for a sec. I mean, what's the worst case scenario on weather in Athens? Uh, the worst, worst, I mean, the, the summer heat and humidity here is pretty gnarly. You know, like you're looking at mid to high nineties sometimes with a hundred percent humidity. So you have to be okay with your summer being super wet and very hot. It doesn't affect me as much cause I'm in the cave, but the natural disaster standpoint, you're the worst case scenario is tornadoes. Oh, yeah, not mm. as bad as people in the Midwest or anything like that. But, you know, honestly, with our, well, I don't know if it's too political, but with our climate changing, however you may or may not think it's changing, the we've had some really, really scary storms this summer. We had a tornado touchdown in the next county over, actually, just about three weeks ago. Crap. Um, yeah, we, we call them popcorn storms, but we get these little storms that only last for 20 minutes and they have golf ball size hail and tons of trees will just come flying down. And then the next thing you know, the storm's gone. And the sun is out. And the sun is out. And then the fire trucks are everywhere. It's it's wild. They come in out of nowhere. So I'd say that's the worst case scenario, honestly. No, you're not going to get me arguing on climate change. Sorry. I, I believe in climate change. Sorry for those listeners who don't. That's interesting. Okay, well, I'll take my earthquakes over tornadoes. Sorry, I just I, I've grown comfortable with earthquakes. 
Yeah, you're okay with it. Yeah. They really, the, the idea of them scares me so much. I was in one small trimmer one time actually randomly in Austria when I was a little kid, and that really freaked me out. So I can't imagine being used to them. Well, I, I can't say I'm used to, used to them, but it is a little freaky. Yeah. I mean, I've especially when you have kids and you're in your house and out of nowhere at two in the morning, you are woken up by what you clearly know is an earthquake because the whole house just starts to do its dance. And then I have an instinct where I wake up instantaneously and I run to the kids. That's that's my gut reaction. And I just make sure the kids are okay. Right. And then everybody's like, you know, uh, my wife wakes up, the dog wakes up, the kids rarely wake up. And I'm like standing that's there so like funny. paranoid dad. Anyways- Earthquakes. What? Yeah. Yeah. What's the protocol in an earthquake? Do you run outside? Is that the safe thing to do? I've actually never known that. Well, they used to say get into a doorway, but then I heard that that wasn't good because the framing of the door could crack and you could be impaled by that. Uh, I don't. Oh, I, I don't know if that's true. I've never encountered that. Um, but right. I also have heard that you get to the side of like you know. Uh, a dresser, a big piece of furniture that isn't going to okay. tip over that if something did fall, it would fall on the taller aspect oh, of that right. piece of furniture. Right. But I mean, yeah, I was in the, the, the 1989 earthquake that we had here that was our last significant earthquake that caused a lot of death and destruction. And uh, I was in the basement of a 10-story apartment building. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, that was, that was intense. <laughs> That is so crazy. But I mean, do, do, the, the way they build homes now, they, they have a certain code they have to meet, or is oh. that just commercial buildings? From what I understand, there's there's a lot of code things. I mean, you have to have the water heater strapped. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's just all these like little things that you have to do. And of course, when they're building big buildings now, I mean, it's just natural. They, they have all these, all this knowledge learned over the years, you know, after right. some major earthquakes, yeah. what to do and what not to do. Oh, yeah, no thanks to me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, let's stick it out with the tornadoes. Yeah. I've survived a couple. It's fine. <laughs> hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. Well, so you travel a bit out of Athens, but how much can you can you give me a percentage of work that you do in Athens versus out of town work? I'd say it's heavily Athens, like 80-20. I get to travel usually two or three times a year, but mostly people really love coming here because of all the reasons we talked about it. It's affordable, you know, getting an Airbnb is easy. There's amazing restaurants around. And so I find a lot of artists would prefer I mean, oftentimes coming from bigger cities to kind of get away from it a little bit and come here instead of bringing me to them. But yeah, so I'd say about 80-20. What are the great differences between, say, Atlanta, Georgia versus versus Athens? Um, well, Athens is much, much, much smaller. So just that in of itself, you know, Atlanta is a huge city. Yeah. 
Atlanta's going through the same things that all other big cities are, which is, you know, rapid gentrification and just massive amount of growth in Atlanta in the past 10 years. But it's also made Atlanta, honestly, a lot cooler. I'm not to start an Atlanta or rekindle an Atlanta-Athens feud, but, <laughs> you know, we both uh, claim to be much cooler than the other. A lot of people have actually started moving to Atlanta. A really cool music scene there has, has I mean, it's always been there, but grown huge in the past 10 years. But I think the main difference, the biggest difference is just ease of getting around, cost of living. Obviously in Atlanta, there's more to do culturally. There's amazing art museums and tons of shows to see. But in the show category, it's pretty wild for the size of town we are, the people that will come play here. Um, You know, every night of the week, except Sunday, there's five shows to pick from. But I think the difference is mostly monetary and, and frankly, traffic. Atlanta was very poorly planned and designed when they first built it. And I don't think they really anticipated the rate of growth that would occur over the last 30 years. Yep. The system in Atlanta for public transportation is called MARTA. And it was originally a federal, uh, federal government funded kind of experiment sort of for a city to expand their, their uh, public transportation. And once that federal money ran out about 10 years ago, MARTA has just, I mean, it still gets you places within the city, but Atlanta is one of those places like LA kind of, although LA's subway system is growing, where for how huge it is, it's begging for some kind of great public transportation system and just doesn't have it, honestly. So traffic in Atlanta, I've had people tell me from LA, and I've driven in both a lot. It's not the volume of people of LA, but man, it's comparable in some ways, you know, depending on what time of day you're driving. Are there other studios in the area that uh, Chase Park competes with? Yeah, there is. There's there's a couple of them. A lot of them have honestly come and gone. I mean, David and Andy built this place 21 years ago, and it's been going strong ever since. But uh, John Keane, who's a pretty famous producer, did a lot of the early REM records and widespread panic records. He's got a really cool place. He actually just moved out of the city and bought a lot of land kind of further out in the country and has got a place out there. But I wouldn't consider John competition. Like He works pretty specifically in a lot of Americana and folk and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And we do that here too. But there's just people who are always going to love John Keene, and it's just about him and his thing. You know what I mean, if that makes any sense? It's funny. I, I've been on a panel with John. Yeah. I, I moderated a panel at a tape-op conference with John, and this was, I don't know, this was eons ago. And I will never yeah. forget John teaching me uh, the tab to transient feature, because we were talking about drum samples. Yeah, and, and John Keane was the one I credit with, you know, saying, "Oh yeah, well you just tabbed a transient." I'm like, well, "Wait, what? What was that?" Yeah, I mean, he literally wrote the book "Musician or Pro Tools for Musicians." Yeah, so he he was like one of the first early adopters, and then helped I think make it a lot easier. I mean, that book was huge at a certain point in early Pro Tools and uh, helping a lot of musicians understand how to get around in that new ecosystem. But uh, you know, there it's funny. I think we compete a lot more on a local level, if that makes any sense. There's not a lot of, like the other studios I can think of, they're all great. And I'm friends with everybody in town because it's a, you know, it's a small group of us. But I'd say we compete for people looking for more of a budget price, you know, like local kids and stuff like that than we do with national acts. Hmm. Not to sound arrogant or anything, but like, I don't think there's another studio. There's definitely, I can say it without 
any sort of reservation. There's not another studio like Chase Park in Athens. Yeah. There are other great studios, but there's nothing quite like this here that we'd be directly competing with. It's more just like we cater to both ends of the spectrum. So we have our rates set at a certain rate, but we're also, if there's a bunch of 19-year-old kids in a rad band and they really want to come here, you know, we always do our best to try to figure that out. And um, I think that's where we compete with a lot of local, other local folks, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. All right. So tell me about your home life. Tell me about your work-life balance and making sure that everybody stays happy in the in the world of Drew Vandenberg. No kids yet. It's just my wife, Catherine, and I. She is a, English, a high school English teacher in a county about an hour away. I took a, a page from David's book, and I definitely enforced a strict hour and a half dinner break every day to go home and see her because she wakes up at 5.30 to go to work. You know, I don't even see her in the morning. And she obviously goes to bed way earlier than me because she's got to get up so early. So we're on kind of odd cycles from each other, but we always make time to have that time together. You know, that's very, very, very important to me to see her. And uh, uh, I, I'm also a huge fan of cooking. So I typically cook dinner about 90% of the time and kind of unwind and catch up on our days. But I will say, in the long term, I'm horrible at work-life balance. Like right now I'm coming off of two months where I've probably had four days off because I was trying to make up for a slower beginning of the year. And I got to be honest, I really don't ever want to do this to myself again. I'm, I'm dragging now. Were you burning the candle at both ends? Oh yeah. I, and I went to New York to record a band and like flew up there and back. And I mean, basically since I got off the plane from Ireland, the next day I started recording and I pretty much haven't stopped. It's wow. been wild. Um, so I would admittedly am not the best all the time at work-life balance. Um, I do take a little time for myself every day and in the morning, try to wake up a couple hours early and take a little time for myself. But in terms of taking days off, I'd say, honestly, I'm pretty horrible at it sometimes. Um, That's a work in progress. You'll, you'll, you'll figure something out. Yeah. I'll I'll have to because I'm also about to turn 33 and I don't know how, I'm no longer a young man who can deal with it anymore. Yeah. This has reminded me of why I need to take breaks, if that makes any sense. I'll I'll talk to you about it in 10 years and we'll see how you're doing with it. (laughs) Yeah. I can't imagine with kids and everything, I I don't know how you have done it and find time to do this. And it seems unbelievable to me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Somehow I make it work. But uh, I think for me, it's a lot of it's working from home. Do you have an operation at home? Do you have an operation? Do you have a studio at home? (laughs) I have a little mobile setup, but I mostly use it for recording, honestly. Like I, I, one of the things I'll do to meet people's budgets sometimes is say like, hey, let's go record the basic tracks at Chase Park and then I can use my mobile rig and we can go to your house or whatever and continue doing overdubs there. But no, I sort of, because of my unhealthy relationship with work sometimes, have tried very consciously to keep work at work and home at home. Even though it works out more healthfully for some people to work from home, I don't have the self-control. And I feel like I'd be like, yeah, I'll just uh, be be right back one second. And then two hours later, I'd you know still be in my uh, control room doing something. So yeah. I, I've always intentionally left this here and not taken it home um, because I don't think I have the self-control, honestly. Interesting. Um, I, I find it very helpful, especially when mixing, because I mix 99.9% of the time by myself. I will work on a song for, you know, a couple hours. And then I'm like, okay, I got to walk away from this at least for an hour. Let's go 
do something and hang out with the kids or I don't know. I just get that break and then I'm like, all right, let me come back with fresh ears now. Where am I at? I think part of it for me is that a lot of people want to come to the studio because I still mix, I mean, 100% of what I do on a console. Okay. And I think, which I know is very odd compared to everyone else, but the I just have a workflow down here that's probably not quite as efficient as being in the box and being able to recall instantly, but I feel good about it. And I think a lot of people like a lot of my clients at least like coming to the studio and sort of having the Chase Park experience and mixing on the console and being here, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That still appeals to a lot of the people I work with. I'd say 80% at least of what I mix is still attended actually. I always say, you know, whatever works. I find it for me, especially working with younger bands who's no offense, but sometimes attention spans aren't as good. Yeah. That the emailing back and forth and waiting for the response thing, eh, it can waste a lot of time sometimes. Whereas if they're sitting in the room and I could say, hey, do you like the way that bass sounds? And they can look up from their phone instantly and tell me. <laughs> I find that goes a lot, a lot smoother <laughs> sometimes. Um, so I actually find it weirdly much, just the way my life is set up, much more efficient that way. Yeah, man. Whatever gets the work done and keeps the client happy, that's how you get there is, is no matter. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I am envious, you know, like, you, you know, I know UA is one of your big sponsors. I am very, I've never tried the whole Apollo ecosystem and I'm very, very curious about it. Even, even if it's just for my mobile recording setup, being able to not being able to process things, you know, to tape but through their emulations sounds like a really cool thing. We were kind of touching on the money thing earlier. Do you have an approach to money? In, uh, in what, uh, just sort of like savings and stuff like that in general? Yeah. Like when the money comes in, do you immediately turn around and go buy gear or do you? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I, well, for years I was super disciplined and it was very easy to be because I was in Chase Park. You know, again, like I wasn't building, I never tried to build something from the ground up, at least not yet. So uh, being surrounded by so much awesome gear already for the first several years, my temptation was almost nil, honestly. Yeah. Like there was just no point. David and Andy had spent so much money and getting so much cool stuff that, yeah, just no reason. But as the mobile recording thing grew for me and as my tastes or not really taste, but wanting to experiment grew for me, that's when it kind of kicked in. And um, in the past few years, I have purchased quite a lot of gear, but it's but it's always for a specific reason, like, okay, Chase Park didn't have that, and I really want this flavor, so I'm going to buy this specific item. In terms of when money's coming in, I always set aside, well, I try to set aside 15 to 20% for taxes in a separate savings account. I've always done my own taxes, uh, which I'm getting to the point now where I might, it's getting exhausting. And I had a scare a couple of years ago. That actually ended up not being a mistake of mine, but a mistake of a record label and how they filed the way that they paid me. And it ended up being okay, but man, it put the fear in me of, you know, what, what have I done? Have I done something wrong in the past 10 years of my taxes? You know, like, <laughs> is there something else? They, uh, I'm pretty meticulous about it, but no, I, I try to save 15 to 20% in a separate savings account for taxes right off the bat. And then I also have an IRA I set up a few years ago uh -huh. and- I don't put as much money in there as I'd like, but I have a fixed amount that gets withdrawn from my bank account every month so that at least that's going in there. Oh, good you know? for you, man. I wish I was in my early 30s and I was doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My parents are very, are both very good with money. So I learned about budgeting from a 
a very young age, you know, my dad was the kind of guy where I could mow the lawn and get paid $10. And then I had to put five, five of it in a jar for savings automatically. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely ingrained in me from a very young age to kind of manage money that way. Just a little bit of a rant, because this occurred to me as you were saying this, you made a comment about you didn't, you were very disciplined for many years because you had Chase Park. Right. And that speaks to the idea that if there's a studio in your area that you're quite fond of and you like how it's run, you like the people, one way to support that is to continue that. It's a good way to be a little bit um, smart with your own money, but it also keeps you coming back to a studio and supporting that studio and supporting your ecosystem. Because if you had just said, well, I'm going to you know, buy all this stuff and just put it in my house right. and not bring any business to Chase Park, not to say that they would have gone down from one engineer not coming there, but it certainly helps when there is a continual flow of engineers coming into a studio and utilizing that studio. And that provides you a home to come work that's reliable, that's got the infrastructure that you need. Uh, right. So- that's that's my little rant on supporting your local studio. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never had any desire to compete with this place. You know, it, Andy and David have it so dialed in, and eventually, I mean, my long long term goal, maybe fifteen years from now, is to have some kind of just a room, you know, maybe a room at home or something, my own space that I can mix in and leave it kind of set up exactly the way I want it to be, you know, but that's, that's not out of a desire to compete or, or really even run it as a commercial space. It's really just out of a desire for convenience, you know, of workflow more than anything, because the one thing about here is that there are several of us. So sometimes you might walk in and someone's got things set up a little bit differently than you do, than you would. So it, you know, it can take a little extra time to get it kind of configured the way you want it, but it's never such a hassle that it's detrimental to anything. You know what I mean? That speaks to how the studio is set up. Exactly. David and Andy have always made it very easy to be very flexible in here. Um, and I've never been a part owner, but I keep all of my equipment here and it's free for anybody else engineering who wants to use it to use. I just feel like if it adds value for them, then it helps me too. It kind of just helps the collective brand. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I don't even keep my equipment at home. I have... I don't even know how many how much gear here. A lot of gear here. It also as as a young engineer, it it kind of gives you a place to grow, and it and it gives you a place to kind of get a sense of what are my recording habits, what do I like, what do I not like, so that when you do make the choice to buy a piece of gear, in your case, you have very specific reasons to do so. It's a flavor that you want, and that's I think that's a wise move. That whole approach, I think, is just it helps it helps keep the studio model alive. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's like there's no reason I don't know for me to just if, if if I if I had to out of necessity go make my own space, I would. But there's just no reason this you know, like you said, this this place is amazing, and if I can just keep supporting it and letting you know new people know about it, it just kind of continues the cycle. And and we have engineers. 10 years younger than me, honestly, who are just starting off, who are the new me from 10 years ago. And so the cycle continues, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. So the flip side of all that, that we're talking about, you know, of supporting the studio, you know, while it is uh, really great to do so, is that 
the independence of owning a bunch of your own gear and having that fluidity to, you know, so you could stay nimble and you can, you know, hey, can you come record in a barn and, you know, in the next town over? Can you do this? Can you do that? You know, that's that's what I like. Yeah. Now, I say that I never do that because I my rig pretty much stays glued to my house. But right. I love that flexibility. Yeah, well, you know, that's what, what I was saying before. I do have a mobile setup that, so now that I do own a bunch of my own gear, I can, in the back of my little Mazda, throw my stuff in there and anywhere with electricity record 16 tracks super easily, you know? So I do have that. And it actually, that does, it. it especially around here when people are trying to save money, it happens fairly frequently. Um, I'm just not set up really to properly mix anywhere. You know what I mean? As far as your habits, are you like a bike rider, a jogger? I'm a cyclist. Yeah, I love riding my bike. Where my wife and I bought our house a couple years ago, there's a really like nice access road that runs parallel to the main highway. It's just low traffic. There's a lot of cool loops you can do off of it. You know, 10, 15, 20 mile loops. I have a quicker morning one I do that's seven miles because I can do that in about 25 or 30 minutes. Yeah, the, the way I try to stay healthy is cycling, although honestly, admittedly, again, not the best at staying on top of it all the time. Oh, you know what else? Cooking uh, is another habit. I am obsessed with cooking. I love it. Really? Oh, yeah. It does the same thing to my brain that mixing does in terms of fun, like feels good. Uh, it works those same muscles, but in a different way. So when I was saying earlier earlier that it's always important for me to take an hour and a half so I can hang out with Catherine, the other thing that it does for me when I'm cooking is it just completely relaxes my mind and takes it off of work, you know, because I have to think about, all right, I need to do this at this time and this spice goes here and that goes there. And uh, I'd say that's another thing that I, I love to do to unwind. I, I, honestly, on days off, I'll look up complicated recipes and make my day way busier than it needs to be getting ingredients and then making some insanely elaborate meal for just Catherine and I. What's a pet peeve of yours in the studio? Um, with artists or just in general? Either one. I think lack of engagement. You know, I made that joke earlier about being on the phone, but man, that ruffles my feathers when it's, it's especially frustrating when it's honestly flabbergasting when someone's spending potentially thousands and thousands of dollars to pay me to be here in this place and then they frankly just seem like they don't give a shit. You know, it's, it's yeah. that infuriates me. So even just talking about it, I'm getting more and more worked up about it. So I just don't understand that. I don't understand we're making art. It's at the end of the day, I mean, I'm being artistic with it too, but it's your art. So like, if you don't care enough to pay attention and know what's going on, then why should I, or why should anybody else pay attention to it? You know what I mean? How do you deal with it, though? I, I'm a extremely direct and honest person, sometimes to a flaw, where I will just say what's on my mind to somebody, not in a mean or aggressive way, but I can be blunt sometimes, or I can be pretty sarcastic, admittedly, also sometimes. But I, I really just try to keep things in the studio. I, I tell this to all my clients before I work th with them, like, it's important here to be honest. And so honesty is it's always a good thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean what I'm going to tell you is, you know, nice maybe. And not, not, again, not mean, but it's just going to be to the point. And so uh, if I see somebody who's just, someone else is in the band is doing an overdub and they're just played their heart out on a guitar solo, 
I mean, how great does it feel to turn around and see your three friends on their phone? Like, yeah, cool, man. That's yeah, cool. I guess, you know, like that's just not good for the creative energy for anybody. Um, yeah. It's like, you might as well just kick them out. Yeah, exactly. At that point, they're they're not only not contributing, they're honestly deducting, subtracting from the creative energy in the room. So I just try to be very upfront with people. Like I, I, I've never tried anything as radical as banning phones, although I did work on a session one time where the artist slash producer did that, and it was pretty incredible. It made me realize a lot about my own habits, even honestly, how much I just constantly pressed the little button for no reason. But I, I guess my whole point is, you know, I just try to be very honest with people like, look, we're all here to work and do something as amazing as we possibly can. And I mean, I'll, yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll be blunt with them and say, look, you're honestly detracting from this and you're harming the record. So either please go into yeah. the lounge or put the phone down. And like when your friend turns around and asks you what you think about his party just played, answer them, damn it. You know, like- <laughs> Show some respect show, and be mindful of what's happening. Yeah, be in the moment. The whole point is to be here and be in the moment and make art. And I mean, I'm not going to sit around and say that I don't get distracted sometimes too. I think every human being does, you know? Yeah. Well, these phones, as I hold this up, which the audience can't see, are the new television. Oh, yeah. Very distracting, just like a drug. My mom and dad were very big advocates when I was a kid of going and playing outside and my dad would always tell me how the boob tube was making me stupid and to turn it off and go out in the woods and run around, you know? Well, Drew, it's been great talking with you. I certainly appreciate you coming on. I hope to meet you in person someday. I, I think I need to make a trip to Athens. You do. It'd be amazing to have you. Uh, uh, we put you the studio even has a cool little loft apartment you can stay in. We call it the bachelor pad. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Great to be on, Matt. I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of the show, like I said, so it's uh, it's not to be use flowery language, but it is. It's kind of an honor to be on here. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm I'm glad you look at it that way. I'm once again, I'm I'm just stunned that people continue to listen so uh and talk to me and answer my questions. So thank you for doing so and, and giving uh giving us some good food for thought. Yep. Thank you, Matt. Have a good one. All right. Take All care. Right. Bye. Drew Vandenberg here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I want to encourage you to stop on by workingclassaudio.com and click on one of our sponsors' links there. They help make the Working Class Audio Podcast possible. I'm talking about Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, and Gearsluts.com, as well as the License Lab. Also want to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith for their contributions to the show. And thanks for listening. I appreciate it carry on the tradition and tell all your friends and until next time take care hey i know many of you are aware of this but for those of you that aren't aware working class audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life and quite simply put it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. Yeah.